Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 7, 5 to 73. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of, of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people from, of, the providence, of the province who came out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came from Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bitshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Neam, Behananon. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 652. The sons of Pethoth, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zetu, 845. The sons of Zekai, 760. The sons of Benai, 648. The sons of Bebai, 628. The sons of Azgad, 2,322. The sons of Adnakam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Aden, 655. The sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Asham, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Hareph, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netophi, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Bez Asmaveth, 42. The men of Kiriath Jerem, Shepariah, and Beroth, 743. The men of Hamam and Geba, 621. The men of Mishmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Hono, 721. The sons of Sinai, 3,930. The priests and sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052, the sons of Pasher, 1,247, the sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Cadmiel, of the sons of Hodavah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 146. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalem, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hathai, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabath, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siah, the sons of Padon, the sons of Leban, the sons of Hadabah, the sons of Shalmael, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gideel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of, he of Reha Reha Reha, 
the sons of Rezab, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uza, the sons of Pasiah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Miahim, the sons of Nepashim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakuban, the sons of Harhar, the sons of Basleth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harasha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisra, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neaziah, the sons of Hadapha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Parida, the sons of Jehaha, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidil, the sons of Shephathiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth, Hazabim, the sons of Hiram. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Telmelah, Telharsha, Carib, Hayden, and Immer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also, of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakazaz, the sons of Bazil, who had taken a wife of the daughters of, of Barzil, the Gileadite, and was called by their name, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. They had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest's garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. This is the word of the Lord. Way to go. She did it. Oh, boy. I think I've, I've developed a... Um, I've, I've developed like a spidey sense, like a pastor's spidey sense where I just, I, I, I've learned to like sense the room, the feelings, the, what people are thinking uh, as we're here in the sanctuary together. Um, and and I, have a, I have a suspicion I know what you were thinking as Marianne uh, read that lengthy genealogy. Uh, I think, I think you were all thinking, this sounds really familiar. Right, all of you are probably great Bible scholars studying the word of God day in, day out, and you're thinking, I'm pretty sure I've heard this before, and if you were thinking that, then yes, you are right, because we, in fact, have heard almost an identical list of names given all the way back in Ezra chapter 2. Now, a good rule for interpreting the Bible is if it's repetitious, get suspicious, so whenever you see something repeated, whether it be a word or a phrase, or in this case, a genealogy, 
We ought to ask ourselves, why is this here? Why is there a repetition? Why is there this added emphasis? Why would, I mean, why would Nehemiah take up the extra space in your Bible to list out everything that was just listed a couple chapters back? We ought to ask ourselves, what's the significance of this? Now, my goal for today is it's quite a task. My goal for today is to show you the significance of these names, not only for the sake of Nehemiah's story, but for us, for us as the church, for you personally. And so what I'm gonna do is go meticulously through each and every name. I hope you packed a lunch, maybe a supper. We're gonna be here for, no, I'm just kidding, we're not doing that. Uh, I'm just messing with you. Uh, But we are gonna see the significance of this today. We're we're gonna dive into why does Nehemiah put this here. So I'm gonna pray. I ask you, will you pray for me? I'll pray for you. And we'll ask the Lord to, to bless us in this time. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for your kindness towards us in Christ. We thank you for your word, uh, that by faith we can agree with you and we can think your thoughts after you and say that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. We can say that this word is inspired by God, is profitable for teaching and reproof and and discipline God. And so we pray this morning that your word would be that agent in our lives, in the lives of this church, that it would correct us and bring us into righteousness. That this word that's before us would give us a, a grand view of the kind of God that we serve. And so would you open our eyes to see Would you unstop our ears so that we may hear and soften and till the soil of our hearts so that we would receive this word would be planted in us. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to think clearly, that you would give me a tongue of precision, that that you would grant me the ability to honor you in everything that I, I do and say here this morning for the edification of your people, this church for the good of our city, and ultimately for the glory of Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen. Okay, if you're new to Sacred City, we don't oftentimes read a 69-verse-long genealogy. It's not... Pretty, it's not a, a normal thing. Although if you were here, you know, like a few months ago, then yeah, it would have been normal. But, but it's not something we always do. But one of the things that we always do is we preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible. Uh, and we have been for, uh, for really the majority of, of 2020. We started out in Ezra at the beginning of the year. We took a little break and we jumped back in in the fall to the book of Nehemiah, which originally were two books put together, two, like one story that were grafted together and then had later on been separated into two distinct uh, books. But actually, it wasn't just Ezra and Nehemiah linked together. It was a, a long chronicle of First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah all put together. So we've been studying the story of Ezra and Nehemiah throughout this last year and we're at the, at the halfway mark. Um, and what we've seen in the first six chapters of, of Nehemiah, specifically focusing in on Nehemiah, is that these six chapters are just packed with action. Like, I don't know if there's a, a book of the Bible that has more action going on from, from long journeys and travels and opposition and, and all kinds of things, a big tasks that God lays before his people. It is just packed with action. And it all starts out um, where Jerusalem, the city of David, um, God's city, is lying in ruins. And it's lying in ruins because generations before this moment, before the story of Nehemiah starts, God's people had lost their way. They were called to be a faithful people, a holy people, a people set apart for God by God. And they rather than living into their God-given identity as his people, his covenant people, they forsake, forsook his ways and turned to the ways of the world. And when that happens, God brought judgment through the surrounding nations and, and the city of Jerusalem was laid to waste. The, the temple, the, the dwelling place of God, the, unique, the most unique place on earth was ransacked. All the gold, all the, the, the precious uh, Ornaments and um, decor and basins and all of that was just brought to the ground. Homes destroyed, the city walls, the gates, all ran over. And when we open the book of Nehemiah, what we see is this man who is hundreds of miles away in the land of Susa, 
that God calls out, his name's Nehemiah, that God calls and says, hey, I'm gonna send you back to your homeland and I'm going to task you with rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. So God calls Nehemiah, he makes this long journey, he asks for the king's blessing to go. At this point, he was serving wine in the king's quarters and he's gonna go back and he's gonna become basically a, a construction worker, a foreman for this giant rebuilding project. And Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem where there has been some work. They've, they've been able to rebuild the altar and, and the temple has been rebuilt, uh, though it's, it's in its former glory. It's not, not in all of its former glory. It's sort of a shadow of what once was of Solomon's temple. Um, Nehemiah lands in Jerusalem and he starts casting this vision for what God is going to do, what God's will is for his people in that locale. And he tells the people, God wants us to build a wall to rebuild the city wall that went around the perimeter. Now, this is a 40-foot wall made of giant stones, stones that range from uh, a ton to some six, seven, eight tons of rock, just giant slabs, 40 feet tall, and the perimeter of the city being about two and a half miles long. So this massive undertaking. Nehemiah casts this vision, says, hey, will you, will you come on with me? Will you join me in this work? And what we see is a glob of ordinary people, just your average Joes who catch the vision, who rise up and, and start to work to rebuild the city of Jerusalem's walls. And as they do so, they do this at great personal cost. We've seen how, how this has played out in several different ways throughout uh, chapters four, five, and six of, of Nehemiah. And as they're rebuilding, what we see is very quickly they run into some hiccups, both internal, they're, they're dealing with some in-house issues, people of God taking advantage of one another, but there's also some external issues that they keep running into. That they have found that they are very much on an island as they reside in Jerusalem. Their, their surrounding neighbors very much have a disdain for them. They, they do not like the idea of God's people rebuilding the city of David, and they go to great lengths to stop them or try to stop them. But we see is through this whole process that, that Nehemiah is not swayed. God's people don't really stop. There's, there's moments of, of hesitation, but ultimately they keep going and plotting and, and accomplish this task that God has put before them, and they do so in record, record time. We saw last week, 52 days. It only took them 52 days. Now, this is incredible um, because you're dealing with a bunch of volunteers without power tools. Like, there's no heavy machinery to move these giant slabs of stone. You've got a, a large group of people that have taken it upon themselves. But, but what we see here in chapter 6 is it's not just the, the effort of the people that has led to their success. It's not just Nehemiah's ability to be a good vision caster and to be a good leader and to organize and mobilize. The reason why God's people succeeded is because God had supernaturally helped them. This is what, what happened when, when the neighbors see the, the city walls go up, they finish the job, and it tells us that they are struck with fear because they realized that God had helped them. And so we stand in this moment of time where Nehemiah probably feels great. I mean, a big job now accomplished. The people probably are excited. We got walls. You know, people are, are planning to move into the city and actually dwell there now that, now that there's a fortress, now that they can, can live there in, in sort of a safe environment. And so everybody's feeling good. And, and it's in order for, for Nehemiah to make a way for life moving forward here, what he does is he sets up watchmen around the city walls, around the gates to protect the people who are going to move in the city limits. And as Nehemiah sets up these men, he moves on to his next matter of business, which is in verse five of chapter seven. He says, then my God put, in, put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled in a genealogy. So he has this desire. God has once again spoken to him, Giving him a task, he's like, I need you to put together a genealogy to, to take a consensus of the people around you. And so we'll see this later on next week, but before he gets to this, this task of bringing the people in, he says, well, we better refer back to the history logs. And so he goes and he digs up the, the book of genealogy that Ezra had given in chapter two of, of Ezra. He says, um, 
I got into my heart to enroll a genealogy and I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first and, and here's what I found written in it. So as, as Nehemiah is looking to the future, he's looking to um, the, the continuation of, of um, rebuilding Jerusalem. And he wants to document the, the refounding members. They're not the founding members, but they're the refounding members who have helped to build up the city. Uh, and he wants to be able to chronicle them in the history books for, for the generations that will come. But in the process of looking forward, of taking account of, of the people that have got him to this minute, what he does is he looks back to the past looks back to the book of genealogy of, of Ezra. Now, what's interesting about this is Nehemiah could have just made mention of this document. He's like, yeah, by the way, I found this really cool document that Ezra wrote down, all these great names, probably cool people, probably hang out with them if I had a chance. Um, and he could have just mentioned it and moved along with the story. But instead, Nehemiah does something very fascinating. He finds this book and he copies every family every name, every number down by hand, down by hand. He, he, there's, no there's no control C here. You know, it's not control copy, control paste. You, there's none of that going on in Nehemiah's time. He took it all down by hand and, and indicated the role or the part that they played in this whole ordeal of coming back as the first wave of exiles return. Now, the question is, why does Nehemiah do this? Why does he take the time? Why does he in, uh, devote so much real estate in his journal to all of these names? Why does he endure the hand cramps? I've been writing a lot of hand, handwritten notes lately, and I can make, make it through like three sentences before I'm achy, right? And you just can't do it anymore. Why would he do that? Why did he endure all the hand cramps? Well, here's the answer. Nehemiah is paying homage to the OGs. Nehemiah is paying homage to the trailblazers who had come before him, the, the Jewish pilgrims, if you will, the people who had made a long journey back from the land of Babylon, who, who took risks to sacrifice their temporal comfort in the sort of pagan, squishy land and moved to rebuild their homeland for the sake of a future glory. The, the men and women who gave and invested what they had for something bigger than themselves. Who, who did all of this work, who traveled, who worked hard, who sacrificed, who laid their lives down so that the next generation could have it better than they did. What Nehemiah is doing, he's both reminding himself and he's showing us that he stands on the shoulders of giants. If it weren't for these courageous men, and this, is, this is why it was worthwhile for us to read this passage. Right? We're talking about giants. If not for these courageous men and women taking the first steps to leave Babylon, to return home, to seek to rebuild the altar, the temple, the homes, the city, Nehemiah would be irrelevant to us. There would be no citywide renewal project without these people. There'd be no people there. There'd be no temple. There would be no city, no walls to build. And so Nehemiah is acknowledging these people who came before me, I owe my success to them. And this realization cultivates a deep humility and gratitude in Nehemiah's heart, he, he could be proud. He could be boastful and say, look what I accomplished. Look what, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps. I put my nose to the grindstone. I worked my tail off to do this, which he did. But he doesn't boast like that. Instead, he, he, he shows us humility and points to the people on whose shoulders he is standing on. He expresses gratitude for these people. Now, this ought to do the same for us because like Nehemiah, we too stand on the shoulders of giants. I would even say to an even greater extent because not only do we stand on the shoulders of those who Nehemiah stood on the shoulders of, but there are decades and generations worth of men and women between Nehemiah and us who we are standing on right now. 
But too often, we do not appreciate this long and rich heritage that we have. Too often we get chronological tunnel vision. Like we can't see, we're just stuck in the here and now. Like I'm just worried about today. I'm just worried about what's right in front of me. I'm just worried about myself. I don't have the mindfulness to, to think back to all the people who, who paved this path for me. I, I can't even think to the next generation of people who will walk on the path that I ought to be laying down for them. And so we kind of get stuck in the here and now. This is one of the glorious things of the scriptures, though. God doesn't allow us. If you read the Bible, God does not allow us to be stuck in the here and now. Now, there is a very much a present reality that God calls us to occupy. But we cannot do so rightfully without honoring the past and then thinking forward to the future. This chronological tunnel vision that we tend to get uh, is, is cultivated by a lot of things. Um, just the spirit of the age, consumerism, and uh, radical individualism, all of these things that have, have sort of perpetuated this, this narrowing in of the field, of, of putting the blinders on so I can only see what I want to see. But one of the things that, that I think has contributed to this that you may not realize um, is the fact that cemeteries are now hidden out of sight. You ever notice that? That, that, that it used to be in, that the cemetery would be right next door to the church. And it served as a twofold reminder. First, it would, it would be this, this reminder of, of memento mori, remember your death. It's this reminder that one day, you too will be six feet under and your name will be on a rock. That you will die, life will expire and you will stand before the judgment throne. It's this reminder of remember your death. You will have to give an account for your life someday. Live coram Deo before the face of God. This is the reminder that it, it serves so that you would live wisely today in light of your future. But the other reminder that it served was cemeteries marked where the giants lay. The ancestors, the men and women who faithfully lived here before us. The men and women who, who suffered and strove to build homes and churches. I, I just think of this. I mean, this, one of the cool parts about moving, we didn't build this building. This has been around since I think the 30s. This, at least this original um, building was built. If you walk around here, you'll see there's nameplates everywhere. Faithful men and women who've gone before, who've contributed, who've worked to help build at least this building, who've laid their lives down, who have served, who've, who've given. But not just in our homes and our churches, but in the city, businesses, people suffering, laying down their lives, creating new um, means of commerce to help employ people, to improve our city, working hard, striving hard to make our city a flourishing place to cultivate community here in this locale. See, that, that's what cemeteries did. They, they reminded us that the giants have come before us. And because we aren't necessarily reminded of them often, we have this, this um, ancestral amnesia where we become proud, we become ungrateful people, we, we live in the domain that C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, where we tend to convince ourselves that the present, in the present, we're way more significant, way more enlightened, way more with it than anybody else who came before us. And I think you see this really in our culture's general indifference toward history. We often look past the hard work, the sacrifice, the advancement that the generations before us have made in their faithfulness to God. And oftentimes, at least it seems 
the case in the culture, the only times that we look back at the past is to point the finger and blame them for all of our problems, to be critical and condemning. No, let me, let me just, no, no generation is perfect. Every generation has its flaws and blind spots. But we are fools to think that great men and women have not come before us. Now, this is true both as Americans and as Christians, even more so as Christians. And we do well to honor the giants on whose shoulders that we currently stand. Because all of the present glories exist. All of, all of the blessings that we get to enjoy today are ours because of the past sufferings of previous generations. I think this is something, this is a distinctive of Christians. So you have an admiration of the past, to, to honor those who have come before us. And I think one of the ways that we can start is by honoring those within closest proximity to us. I mean, just think of the people who have helped you get to where you are right now. Both, both in a very um, existence kind of way, the people who put food in your mouth when you were a kid, but also the people who, who nurtured you and cared for you spiritually to get you to the place where you stand with your heavenly father right now. Whether it be parents who, who opened up the word of God, who taught you to sing and, and, and worship the Lord, who, who trained you in the way of Christ, who catechized you. Or grandparents who were the pioneers for your family's heritage. That's the case of my grandpa. My grandpa Bill was a Lutheran pastor. Man, and I, I don't know if I can get through this without crying, but when I think about it, it just overwhelms me that God would, before my grandpa, the Stanton side of the family, it was a bleak future. And God graciously plucked out a man, an undeserving man, and showed him grace upon grace. And that man made it his life to lead his family into that grace. You can think of the pastors who've gone before you who have set an example, right? What the scripture tells us to honor them, to look at them for the ones who have set an example for you to follow. To the disciples, I would not be here today if it weren't for, there's many people, but um, one guy who invested in me, his name's Jeff Mickey. And maybe, maybe you didn't grow up in the church, but you had neighbors, you had friends who grafted you in who brought you to church, vacation, Bible school, employers who gave you a second chance, all these people who invested in you to get you to where you are. Now that's just within the last generation or two. Now just think back a few generations before that. For, for most of us, we're only a few, two. Now some of us are, are maybe first generation, if not second generation immigrants to the United States. People who saw opportunity here in, in the United States for them that got on a ship, came across, flew across, however they got here, they took a risk to get here. Now, most of us, it's like three, four generations removed. That's not very, very long ago. People who took a risk to get here, the founding fathers who envisioned a country of freedom, and even before them, the pilgrims who came across on the Mayflower. All of these people we stand on their shoulders. You go back even further to men like Calvin and Luther and Augustine and John Chrysostom. Chris, Chrysostom, can't oversee that. Guys who left a legacy, made an impact, whose shoulders that we now step on, stand on go back even further. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that we stand on the shoulders, the, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We stand in the midst of a host of witnesses. Church history is littered with faithful men and women, giants of the faith. 
People who took God at his word, who trusted him, who walked before him, who lived righteously and did the next right thing. And in doing so, they laid a foundation. They laid a foundation for us to stand on. But not just for us to stand on, but for us to build on top of. See, the question is, once we realize the foundation in which we stand, the question is, what are we gonna do with that? Are we gonna squander this this lavish inheritance that we've received by God's grace, or, or are we going to build upon it? Are we going to advance that for the sake of next generations? That's what Nehemiah has on his mind. He looks back and he's looking forward because he realizes that it is our turn to carry on the torch. That's why he's taking a new genealogy. He's like, there's a a new batch of people here. Many people have passed away, some are still around, but here we are. It's our turn to carry the torch. As Christians, we must realize, it's always been this way. It's always been this way, that God's work is a multi-generational work can't be done in one lifetime, can't be done in a decade. It's ongoing until the day that Jesus returns. We see this this sort of echoed with Paul. I'm getting all snotty-nosed up here still. Excuse me. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.3, he says, I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. See, the, the daily life of the apostle Paul was oriented by what those who have done, who have come before him. A present that honors the past creates a bright trajectory for the future. If we want glory, if we want to renew the Quad Cities, this isn't a new work. We're not starting something new here. God has been at work doing this for a long time. The way that we we lean into it, the way that we explode into the future is by building upon the past because we're not in a vacuum. God's work carries on through us. He is still building. Now, in Nehemiah's time, is a wall, but right now, it's the kingdom of heaven. Right now, God is building for himself a people, a church, In Ephesians 2.20, speaking of the apostles and the prophets, um, Paul says this. He says um, that you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is going on right now. He's building for himself a people. And Jesus, we know that this is the will of God because Jesus taught us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. To see the kingdom of God unfold before our face so that God's glory, that the glory of Christ would remain in the church for generations. Ephesians 3, that's how he closes that great prayer. So that God can, who can do more than we ever could fathom, ever could ask, ever could imagine. He says, we pray this way so that God would be glorified through all generations. Because you're breathing. This is what it means for you. Because you're breathing, it is now your turn to strive and to sacrifice. Because you have breath in your lungs from God, it is now your turn to do the next right thing and build on our forefathers, to carry the legacy for future generations, to advance the mission of God, to to stand and to join us in the invitation of renewing the Quad Cities to see God's glory cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Now, I could, I could stand up here and just give you this big, because right now it kind of feels like I'm just giving you a pep talk, right? But all of this, 
All this command or this, this vision casting of go build a legacy, go, go expand on the legacy of those before you is useless. It's a pipe dream if it's not built upon Jesus Christ. A life not founded, not built upon Jesus is a waste. And Jesus tells us this. Jesus tells us this himself. When Jesus stands at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter seven, he tells the story of the house that's built on the rock. Let me just read it to you here. Because here it's very clearly, Jesus is saying, you, you've got to build on something. Your life is always built on something and you have one of two choices. He says this, everyone, everyone then who hears these words of mine, that's Jesus' words, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So you have two choices. You either build your life on Christ or anything else. If you build your life on Christ, it will stand. It's not a matter of if the storms and wind and waves will come. It's, it's when they do come. It's either Christ and the rock or it's chaos. And it's this way because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus himself is the path to glory. He brings us through the, 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 the tumult of, of the storm of life and brings us to a safe place where we are hidden in him. If you choose to build your life on Christ, if you choose to hear his words and do them, you'll be ruthlessly committed to Christ and his work in the world. The very last words that Jesus left us with, it's the end of, of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28. Oh boy. In the Great Commission, Jesus, Jesus links the two where he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, because Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Do you see the link between Jesus in, in chapter seven and Jesus in, in Matthew 28? to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you build your life on Jesus, if you hear his words and do them, you will be committed to the work that Christ is doing, to the will of God in this world. That we will be people who pick up the hammer and build, and the ways that we build are, are twofold. By discipleship, by discipling the nations, and by evangelism. We are to make disciples. The way you become a disciple is first, somebody has to proclaim to you, somebody has to tell you of the good news of Jesus Christ. But we don't just naturally float into that. The good news must be proclaimed to people, and that good news must be received by people. The good news that by Christ's blood, you are forgiven. But by Christ's blood, you are saved from your sin. You are reconciled to God. By Christ's blood, you are safe, secure. By Christ's blood, you have hope in the darkness of this world. By Christ's blood, you have a bright and glorious future. See, th this is the glory of the gospel. It's not just for it's not just for the people who are already in the church. 
It's not just for the people who are already religiously minded. This good news is meant to land on the ears of every person, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And anybody can get in on it. Anybody can receive this gift of grace and find themselves now with a new legacy that they're building upon. No longer a legacy of destruction, of brokenness, of bleakness, of misery, but but a legacy of, of brightness, of glory. And that glorious future starts right now. Right now, every day, we are invited into, to live into the, the, the reality of eternity with God. And one of the ways that we lean into this is by learning to obey Christ and his word. Not just to be hearers of the word, not just say, oh, I love this gospel message, it's so good. But to be people who say, whoa, I, I see that Jesus is not just my savior, but my Lord. He's the one who commands my day-to-day life, my destiny. And as we receive the commands of Jesus, especially here in the Great Commission, we become people who give ourselves to this grand work that God is doing, to teach others, to, to evangelize, to share the good news with people who are far from Christ so that they would be brought near by God's grace, to disciple them, to teach them to obey. And all of this starts in the home. All of this starts, men, this starts with discipling your wife, discipling your children, teaching them the way so that they will not veer from it. It starts there and it has a ripple effect out into the church. Now, some some of you, I realize, maybe um, you're married and you you don't have kids yet, or or maybe you're single, and you're like, well, well, what do I do? Where where do I do this building work? Well, God's given you a, a second family. God has placed you within the household of God so that you can be part of this building work that God is doing in the the communion of the saints, in the covenant family of God. And here, your work matters. It carries value and significance. And as we do this together, starting with our household, moving into the church, moving into the city, what we are doing is influencing the next generation in the right direction so that they too would follow in our steps and take the next right steps. But what this means for us in the here and the now is it means that there is work to be done. There there is, God is calling, calling you into a sacrificial life. But in this sacrificial life, you don't lose anything. That's the crazy part of it. It might seem in the world's eye that you're giving up everything. You're giving up the the quest for a great promising career and the freedom to do whatever it is you want. But listen, here's the deal. This is the catch, the paradox of, of the Christian life. Whatever you lay down, you don't really lose it. You don't. Jesus says that he will pay back 100-fold every sacrifice that is made in his name, whether it's in the next generation or generations down the road. These seeds that we plant will one day become mighty cedars. This vision, this vision compels me. This vision is what enables me to do hard things for Jesus day in and day out. And if you don't have that future orientation that's, that's informed by your past, I think it's really difficult to live and do hard things for Jesus in the here and now. So let me ask, do you have this kind of vision? Can you see back? Can you see the future? Does this compel you? Does it move you? Does it shape your loves and the way that you invest your time and talent and treasure? I think if you read the Bible, if you give yourself to the word of God, this is what it's going to produce in you. Because once you've established basic survival for you and your family, well, once you've, you know, you've got housing, you've got a job, you can put food on the table, right? You, you can take care of the, the basic necessities. I think the, the next thing that the scriptures tells us to do is to look forward to the future. My, my, I, I ripped that line from my, my pastor friend, Nick, who, who says we, we need to not just be thinking about uh, an apple tree to pull down one apple from and eat for the day, but we need to be thinking about how we can plant a whole orchard. Now, this is something that there are a lot of men and women 
who have thought this way, who have built incredible legacies. One of them, Jonathan Edwards, um, he used to pray 10 generations out. And if you go through his family history, it's unbelievable the kind of men and women that God has raised up through his, his legacy. I believe that God is, is doing the same thing now. God wants to create here a, a more robust, a more future-oriented, a more glory-oriented glory legacy among the people, the families of Sacred City Church. It's not gonna happen overnight. It's gonna take decades of faithfulness. Faithful generations stacked on more faithful generations so that the glory of the Lord will shine here. They become unignorably bright. This is what's in Nehemiah's mind. He looks to the past. He's hopeful for the future. But it informs his present reality. How am I going to live now? But Nehemiah knows Unless the Lord does build the house, the labors work in vain. Unless the Lord does. Now, we know that it's God's will, it's God's desire for him, for us to build, to, to, to advance the kingdom. The question is, are we doing it? Are we living into that through the power of Christ? God has done it in past generations He'll do it in future generations if we are faithful now and as we give ourselves to this work. As we, like Nehemiah, say there's still work to be done. See, the book doesn't end here. There's still work to be done. But the way that we press on is by realizing that any confidence that we have is not in ourselves, but it's in Christ. It's in Christ who is working through us, the Christ who has worked through past generations. And this is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, therefore, chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, we're surrounded by, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, let us grind with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He suffered. He despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have done what we could not do. You have rescued us from a dark legacy and you've brought us into a brilliant future. We thank you that you have laid your own life down. You, you, you did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you emptied yourself, taking the form of a servant, a suffering servant, who laid it all on the line, who used his, his present time for the sake of the future glory. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who doesn't squander that, that our hearts would be illuminated by that, that our, our lives would just um, ooze that reality, that we would be people who faithfully take the next right steps to do, to, to build the next, the, the next leg of the legacy so that future generations, that the, the glory of God will remain in the church for generations by the work of Christ Jesus, our Lord. We ask you for this. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name we pray. 